Section three of chapter twenty five of a history of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter twenty five, section three some weeks elapsed before the tories ventured again to attack him in the meantime they amused themselves by trying to worry another person whom they hated even more bitterly when in a financial debate the arrangements of the household of the duke of gloucester were incidentally mentioned one or two members took the opportunity of throwing reflections on burnet Burnet's very name sufficed to raise among the high churchmen a storm of mingled merriment and anger. The speaker in vain reminded the orators that they were wandering from the question. The majority was determined to have some fun with the right reverend Whig, and encouraged them to proceed. Nothing appears to have been said on the other side. The chiefs of the opposition inferred from the laughing and cheering of the bishop's enemies, and from the silence of his friends, that there would be no difficulty in driving from court with contumely the prelate whom of all prelates they most detested, as the personification of the latitudinarian spirit, a jack presbyter in lawn-sleeves. They therefore, after the lapse of a few hours, moved quite unexpectedly an address requesting the king to remove the Bishop of Salisbury from the place of preceptor to the young heir apparent. But it soon appeared that many who could not help smiling at Burnet's weaknesses did justice to his abilities and virtues. The debate was hot. The unlucky pastoral letter was of course not forgotten. It was asked whether a man who had proclaimed that England was a conquered country, a man whose servile pages the English commons had ordered to be burned by the hangman, could be a fit instructor for an English prince. Some reviled the bishop for being a Socinian, which he was not, and some for being a Scotchman, which he was. His defenders fought his battle gallantly. Grant, they said, that it is possible to find, amidst an immense mass of eloquent and learned matter published in defence of the Protestant religion and of the English constitution, a paragraph which, though well intended, was not well considered. Is that error of an unguarded minute to outweigh the services of more than twenty years? If one House of Commons, by a very small majority, censured a little tract of which his lordship was the author, let it be remembered that another House of Commons unanimously voted thanks to him for a work of a very different magnitude and importance, the history of the Reformation. And, as to what is said about his birthplace, is there not already ill-humour enough in Scotland? Has not the failure of that unhappy expedition to Darien raised a sufficiently bitter feeling against us throughout that kingdom? 
every wise and honest man is desirous to soothe the angry passions of our neighbours and shall we just at this moment exasperate those passions by proclaiming that to be born on the north of the tweed is a disqualification for all honourable trust the ministerial members would gladly have permitted the motion to be withdrawn but the opposition elated with hope insisted on dividing and were confounded by finding that with all the advantage of a surprise they were only one hundred and thirty-three to one hundred and seventy-three their defeat would probably have been less complete had not all those members who were especially attached to the princess of denmark voted in the majority or absented themselves marlborough used all his influence against the motion and he had strong reasons for doing so he was by no means well pleased to see the commons engaged in discussing the characters and past lives of the persons who were placed about the duke of gloucester if the high churchman by reviving old stories succeeded in carrying a vote against the preceptor it was by no means likely that some malicious whig might retaliate on the governor the governor must have been conscious that he was not invulnerable nor could he absolutely rely on the support of the whole body of tories for it was believed that their favourite leader rochester thought himself the fittest person to superintend the education of his grand-nephew from burnet the opposition went back to summers some crown property near reigate had been granted to summers by the king in this transaction there was nothing that deserved blame the great seal ought always to be held by a lawyer of the highest distinction nor can such a lawyer discharge his duties in a perfectly efficient manner unless with the great seal he accepts a peerage but he may not have accumulated a fortune such as will alone suffice to support a peerage his peerage is permanent and the tenure of the great seal is precarious in a few weeks he may be dismissed from office and may find that he has lost a lucrative profession that he has got nothing but a costly dignity that he has been transformed from a prosperous barrister into a mendicant lord such a risk no wise man will run if therefore the state is to be well served in the highest civil post it is absolutely necessary that a provision should be made for retired chancellors the sovereign is now empowered by an act of parliament to make such a provision out of the public revenue in old times such a provision was ordinarily made out of the hereditary domain of the crown what had been bestowed on summers appears to have amounted after all deductions to a net income of about sixteen hundred a year a sum which will hardly shock us who have seen at one time five retired chancellors enjoying pensions of five thousand a year each for the crime however of accepting this grant the leaders of the opposition hoped that they should be able to punish summers with disgrace and ruin one difficulty stood in the way 
all that he had received was but a pittance when compared with the wealth which some of his persecutors had been loaded by the last two kings of the house of Stuart. It was not easy to pass any censure on him which should not imply a still more severe censure on two generations of Granvilles, on two generations of Hydes, and on two generations of Finches. At last, some ingenious Tory thought of a device by which it might be possible to strike the enemy without wounding friends. The grants of Charles and James had been made in time of peace, and William's grant to Somers had been made in time of war. Malice eagerly caught at this childish distinction. It was moved that any minister who had been concerned in passing a grant for his own benefit while the nation was under the heavy taxes of the late war had violated his trust, as if the expenditure which is necessary to secure the country a good administration of justice ought to be suspended by war, or as if it were not criminal in a government to squander the resources of the state in time of peace. The motion was made by James Bridges, eldest son of the Lord Chandos, the James Bridges who afterward became Duke of Chandos, who raised a gigantic fortune out of war taxes to squander it in comfortless and tasteless ostentation, and who is still remembered as the Timon of Pope's keen and brilliant satire. It was remarked as extraordinary that Bridges brought forward and defended his motion merely as the assertion of an abstract truth, and avoided all mention of the Chancellor. It seemed still more extraordinary that Howe, whose eloquence consisted in cutting personalities, named nobody on this occasion, and contented himself with declaiming in general terms against corruption and profusion. It was plain that the enemies of Summers were at once urged forward by hatred and kept back by fear. They knew that they could not carry a resolution directly condemning him. They therefore cunningly brought forward a mere speculative proposition which many members might be willing to affirm without scrutinizing it severely. But as soon as the major premise had been admitted, the minor would be without difficulty established, and it would be impossible to avoid coming to the conclusion that Summers had violated his trust. Such tactics, however, have very seldom succeeded in English parliaments, for a little good sense and a little straightforwardness are quite sufficient to confound them. A sturdy Whig member, Sir Roland Gwynne, disconcerted the whole scheme of operations. Why this reserve, he said? Everybody knows your meaning. Everybody sees that you have not the courage to name the great man whom you are trying to destroy. That is false, cried Bridges, and a stormy altercation followed. It soon appeared that innocence would again triumph. The two parties seemed to have exchanged characters for one day. The friends of the government, 
who in the Parliament were generally humble and timorous, took a high tone, and spoke as it becomes men to speak who are defending persecuted genius and virtue. The malcontents, generally so insolent and turbulent, seemed to be completely cowed. They abased themselves so low as to protest, what no human being could believe, that they had no intention of attacking the Chancellor, and had framed their resolution without any view to him. How, from whose lips scarcely anything ever dropped but gall and poison, went so far as to say, My Lord Summers is a man of eminent merit, of merit so eminent that if he had made a slip, we might well overlook it. At a late hour the question was put, and the motion was rejected by a majority of fifty in a house of four hundred and nineteen members. It was long since there had been so large an attendance at a division. The ignominious failures of the attacks on Summers and Burnett seemed to prove that the assembly was coming round to a better temper. But the temper of a House of Commons, left without the guidance of a ministry, is never to be trusted. Nobody can tell today, said an experienced politician of that time, what the majority may take it into their heads to do tomorrow. Already a storm was gathering in which the Constitution itself was in danger of perishing, and from which none of the three branches of the legislature escaped without serious damage. The question of the Irish forfeitures had been raised, and about that question the minds of men, both within and without the walls of Parliament, were in a strangely excitable state. Candid and intelligent men, whatever veneration they may feel for the memory of William, must find it impossible to deny that in his eagerness to enrich and aggrandize his personal friends, he too often forgot what was due to his own reputation and to the public interest. It is true that in giving away the old domains of the crown, he did only what he had a right to do, and what all his predecessors had done. Nor could the most factious opposition insist on resuming his grants of those domains, without resuming at the same time the grants of his uncles. But between those domains and the estates recently forfeited in Ireland, there was a distinction, which would not indeed have been recognized by the judges, but which to a popular assembly might well seem to be of grave importance. In the year 1690, a bill had been brought in for applying the Irish forfeitures to the public service. That bill passed the Commons, and would probably, with large amendments, have passed the Lords, had not the King, who was under the necessity of attending the Congress at the Hague, put an end to the session. In bidding the Houses farewell on that occasion, he assured them that he should not dispose of the property about which they had been deliberating, till they should have had another opportunity of settling that matter. He had, as he thought, strictly kept his word, for he had not disposed of this property 
till the houses had repeatedly met and separated without presenting to him any bill on the subject. They had had the opportunity which he had assured them that they should have. They had had more than one such opportunity. The pledge which he had given them had therefore been amply redeemed, and he did not conceive that he was bound to abstain longer from exercising his undoubted prerogative. But, though it could hardly be denied that he had literally fulfilled his promise, the general opinion was that such a promise ought to have been more than literally fulfilled. If his Parliament, overwhelmed with business, which could not be postponed without danger to his throne and to his person, had been forced to defer, year after year, the consideration of so large and complex a question as that of the Irish forfeiture, it ill became him to take advantage of such a lashes, with the eagerness of a shrewd attorney. Many persons, therefore, who were sincerely attached to his government, and who on principle disapproved of resumptions, thought the case of these forfeitures an exception to the general rule. The Commons had, at the close of the last session, tacked to the Land Tax Bill a clause empowering seven commissioners, who were designated by name, to take account of the Irish forfeitures, and the Lords and the King, afraid of losing the Land Tax Bill, had reluctantly consented to this clause. During the recess the commissioners had visited Ireland. They had since returned to England. Their report was soon laid before both houses. By the Tories and by their allies, the Republicans, it was eagerly hailed. It had indeed been framed for the express purpose of flattering and of inflaming them. Three of the commissioners had strongly objected to some passages as indecorous, and even calumnious. But the other four had overruled every objection. Of the four, the chief was Trenchard. He was by calling a pamphleteer, and seems not to have been aware that the sharpness of style and temper, which may be tolerated in a pamphlet, is inexcusable in a state paper. He was certain that he should be protected and rewarded by the party to which he owed his appointment, and was delighted to have it in his power to publish, with perfect security and with a semblance of official authority, bitter reflections on king and ministry, Dutch favourites, French refugees, and Irish papists. The consequence was that only four names were subscribed to the report. The three dissentients presented a separate memorial. As to the main facts, however, there was little or no dispute. It appeared that more than a million of Irish acres, or about seventeen hundred thousand English acres, an area equal to that of Middlesex, Hertfordshire, Bedfordshire, Cambridgeshire and Huntingdonshire together, had been forfeited during the late troubles. But of the value of this large territory, very different estimates were formed. 
the commissioners acknowledged that they could obtain no certain information in the absence of such information they conjectured the annual rent to be about two hundred thousand pounds and the fee simple to be worth thirteen years purchase that is to say about two millions six hundred thousand pounds they seem not to have been aware that much of the land had been let very low on perpetual leases and that much was burdened with mortgages a contemporary writer who was evidently well acquainted with ireland asserted that the authors of the report had valued the forfeited property in carlo at six times the real market price and that the two million six hundred thousand pounds of which they talked would be found to shrink to about half a million which as the exchanges then stood between dublin and london would have dwindled to about four hundred thousand pounds by the time that it reached the english exchequer it was subsequently proved beyond all dispute that this estimate was very much nearer the truth than that which had been formed by trenchard and trenchard's colleagues of the seventeen hundred thousand acres which had been forfeited above a fourth part of it had been restored to the ancient proprieties in conformity with the civil articles of the treaty of limerick about one-seventh of the remaining three-fourths had been given back to unhappy families which though they could not plead the letter of the treaty had been thought fit objects of clemency the rest had been bestowed partly on persons whose seances merited all and more than all that they obtained but chiefly on the king's personal friends romney had obtained a considerable share of the royal bounty but of all the grants the largest was to woodstock the eldest son of portland the next was to albemarle an admirer of william cannot relate without pain that he divided between these two foreigners an extent of country larger than hertfordshire this fact simply reported would have sufficed to excite a strong feeling of indignation in a house of commons less irritable and querulous than that which then sat at westminster but Trenchard and his confederates were not content with simply reporting the fact. They employed all their skill to inflame the passions of the majority. They at once applied goads to its anger and held out baits to its cupidity. They censured that part of William's conduct which deserved high praise even more severely than that part of his conduct for which it is impossible to set up any defence. They told the Parliament that the old proprietors of the soil had been treated with pernicious indulgence, that the capitulation of Limerick had been construed in a manner far too favourable to the conquered race, and that the King had suffered his compassion to lead him into the error of showing indulgence to many who could not pretend that they were within the terms of the capitulation even now after the lapse of eight years 
it might be possible by instituting a severe inquisition and by giving proper encouragement to informers to prove that many papists who were still permitted to enjoy their estates had taken the side of james during the civil war there would thus be a new and plentiful harvest of confiscations the four bitterly complained that their task had been made more difficult by the hostility of persons who held office in ireland and by the secret influence of great men who were interested in concealing the truth these grave charges were made in general terms no name was mentioned no fact was specified no evidence was tendered end of section three